Hello, I'm Clover Stroud and welcome to Tiny Acts of Bravery. My guest this week is chef, author and activist Olia Hercules. I visited Olia's house in London where she was in the middle of cooking for a fundraiser for Ukraine. It was such an honour to hear her take on bravery, especially as my idea for this podcast was in part originally inspired by the extraordinary bravery of the examples we've seen from Ukrainians in the last year and a half. We sat in her garden on a warm afternoon and there were herbs and plants all tangled around us and there was a wood fire she was cooking on just beside us, crackling away that smelt so delicious. And we talked about the idea of the collective bravery of an entire nation and how that inspires individual acts of courage. Olia also opened up to me about her son's recent diagnosis of a genetic condition. So we talked about the different forms of bravery of motherhood too. Olia had such a beautiful collection of three talismans and her advice on how to feel braver is so wise and interesting. I left Olia's house feeling kind of nourished and emotionally a bit stronger. It was so beautiful to meet her. We have spoken on Instagram before, but we'd never actually met in person. It was a really special conversation and I hope you enjoy it. Olia Hercules, it is just so beautiful to be in your garden. And I want to um, describe, you know, we're in East London and I've come into your house, which is full of people cooking the most delicious smelling food. And we're now in your garden beside a also delicious smelling crackling wood fire. And there are herbs and a big bowl of courgettes ready to be cooked. The atmosphere of warmth and creativity and beauty is so strong here. Um, is this what it feels a bit like? Because I've been listening to you talking on other podcasts about the Ukrainian um, kitchen, the summer kitchens, and it's so striking arriving here that it, I don't feel like I'm in London in any way <laughs> whatsoever. Um, have you consciously created that? Is this just the way that you live naturally? Oh, thank you for asking the question. Um, the other day, uh, just a couple of days ago, I had a dumpling class in my house and a Ukrainian uh, woman came in and she said, she came into the kitchen and she said, ah, it's true what they say. This is the most Ukrainian kitchen in London. <laughs> and, I just, and I just kind of like giggled. I, I think it, it was quite a natural mm. um, way that it all kind of happened. Uh, there's a lot of plants everywhere and that's something that we absolutely loved. Mm. So my grandmother, Lucia, and also my mom loved plants so much that it was green inside the house and outside. Mm. Um, my grandma, you know, she grew food, but she also loved flowers and used to sing and talk to them. Mm. And she would always have cut flowers in the kitchen. And yeah, and when we moved here, I just thought I just wanted to feel like home. Like home, yeah. And um, yeah, and you also see different kind of like yeah, bits of Ukrainian folk, like little paintings and um, little bits of uh, home that I brought with me mm. you know uh painted photograph kind of like uh, mm. frames and mm. etc so yeah oh, i don't know it, it just kind so of happened beautiful. and then it turns out that it looks like <laughs> ukrainian it's so beautiful and it feels so abundant and warm and deeply connected to the human spirit and i actually feel very emotional meeting you because um 
you know, I've started a podcast about bravery and part of the reason I started this podcast about bravery is because I felt so inspired by Ukraine and Ukrainian spirit and bravery and the utter extraordinary courage that we've all seen again, unfortunately, again and again and again. You know, it feels sort of particularly special and beautiful to be talking to you. And thank you very, very much for giving me this time. But will you start by telling me what what does bravery, you, Olia Hercules, Ukrainian, mean to you? Oh, um, so throughout my life, you know, I've, I've always been quite an anxious person, I think. I've always been kind of as if something was around the corner, if that, if that makes sense. But I felt like I wasn't scared, that it wasn't fear, you know, that I, you know, I was just living my life. And, you know, there was a constant kind of hum of anxiety, but... But I wasn't afraid of anything. I was ready, almost. Mm. You know, that anxiety was kind of like readying me for something. And then when the war broke out in 2014, actually, I think that was the first time when I actually truly felt, you know, incredible fear, like a, you know, fight or flight. In a, You know, obviously you experience it throughout your life in a micro kind of level. Mm. But that was a really kind of shock to the brain mm. because when Russia annexed Crimea I just realized oh you know that we my my hometown is right next door it's 70 kilometers away mm. from the Crimean border and I thought they're gonna come for us and I was scared that they were gonna come for us then but they didn't so my parents actually had another seven eight years of peaceful living uh, so experiencing that fear but overcoming it in the past eight years and then being re-triggered into it on a, on a completely another level, you know, when the whole of Ukraine got attacked and invaded and when uh, my hometown was invaded uh, by Russians and my mom and dad had to flee and my extended family had to flee and they're all in exile now, leaving their places which look very much like what you see around here. Mm. Loads of green, we love our gardens, you know, it's... And now... From what I know, uh, Russian soldiers are living in our house and it feels really, oh, it just, it makes the hairs on my mm. arms stand on end. That I think that's a really painful thought mm. to have. And actually throughout this winter, I just thought, because there were problems with electricity, obviously, and I just thought, are they chopping down our orchard? Mm. Is that mm. what's happening now? So it's hard. But despite all of this, um, and it's not just me. I feel like, as you say, and thank you so much for being inspired and for making this podcast, I think a lot of Ukrainians um, have shown just how resilient humans are. And you know, sometimes people say, I don't know how you do it. Mm. And mm. I say, I don't know how I do it. And I say, if it happened to you, you'd be the same. I know what you're saying, but I also do think that what we've seen is a kind of an extraordinary spirit and an extraordinary courage, which has been incredibly striking for many people as to the sense of having to kind of face something so terrible as the invasion of your country. And because I suppose we can also see it on social media the entire time as well. But do you feel that there is something about 
Ukraine, maybe it's the history as well, that there is a kind of history of resilience and resistance and bravery that has fed into the national psyche. That's exactly what I was going to say. Um, we, you know, unfortunately, it, it's a cycle. It's been happening to us for many, many years. You know, that hum of anxiety is, isn't just coming out of thin air mm. or it's not just the modern life that's making us feel that way. Mm. It's actually intergenerational trauma mm. that's simmering under the skin. Mm. And, um, you know, because my, my grandmother, for example, you know, 1920s after the the first lot of starvation before Holodomor, you know, they were quite well-to-do farmers and her dad was put in prison and her mom and her siblings were put into a cattle train and, you know, in inverted commas, deported to, uh, you know, the edge near Finland and thrown out in the forest in the middle of winter to die. And they survived. Mm. And those kind of stories actually weren't even really shared until a certain point because you know up to kind of like the beginning of the 80s it was so dr draconian and mm. totalitarian mm. i mean it's been until the end of the soviet union but um, but in the 80s you had a little bit of a kind of a thaw and a glassness etc but before that my grandparents didn't dare mm bring those stories up just in case the children say something in school and then everybody gets into mm. really serious trouble. But in the 80s, they felt like, ah, there's a little bit of a loosening here and we can actually tell the stories. And that's when I was born. Mm. So I was born into this period when those stories started coming out. And actually, I believe they started coming out when, you know, we have a really big extended family and we'd sit like we're sitting today under the tree it was a walnut tree. Today we've got a pear tree yeah. and a long table with uh, with all of our kind of like extended family, whether it was a birthday or another kind of celebration and there'd be food and there'd be drinks and mm. and uh, the adults would tell these stories and one would interrupt another and, you know, sometimes it was fun and loads of laughter and it's like, no, you don't remember it the right way to do it. And sometimes it would go really serious and everybody would be really quiet when my grandma would be telling the stories of her deportation, of my, of my grandfather's imprisonment and, you know, he was sent to essentially a gulag near Japan in Sakhalin Island. He returned, you know, and they all kind of survived. The thought of kind of like, oh my God, how many little points where they were on the verge of not su not surviving mm, mm. and I wouldn't be here. Mm, mm. And it gives me, it gives me strength to think about what they've been through and, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I can survive what's go going on, what's happening to us now. So drawing on the strength of the past and also, I mean, it's a beautiful image that you've just described of a long table and, you know, generations of a family. Do you think a shared narrative of not just survival, but connection and creativity and growth and positivity is important for developing ideas of bravery, I suppose, and courage and how we do it as, as individuals and as a group? Well, exactly. Just to go back, I know that I went on a tangent, so <laughs> just to explain what bravery and courage means to me it's when you have something to defend when you've got a really strong feeling of you know so for example the russians are invading but why are they invading what feeling is guiding them you mm. know there's nothing there like why are ukrainians so much fiercer is because we've got our families we've mm. got our houses we've got our gardens we've got our communities mm. And we've got our history mm. and all of that is feeding into that feeling of, you know what? And now I think it's actually at a climax. And now we are like, no, this, this cycle 
needs to, to stop, stop. Yeah. and we need you know and all of that kind of like strong energy is what is what bravery is is what yeah. courage is yeah is something actually from within which is like actually no yeah this is this is it like yeah. we need to stop this now and may you know i've described that feeling of anxiety but actually it was all also a feeling of well i'm ready yeah i'm ready to go and you can't do anything and i'm gonna I'm going to do everything to defend myself or my country or my family. Yeah, it's really interesting as well because so far these conversations I've had around bravery have been individual acts of bravery. And this you're talking about a kind of national group energy, which is a different kind of thing and is unbelievably powerful as we're seeing in Ukraine at the moment. I have read, you know, you've written beautiful, beautiful cookbooks and my daughter gave me your book, Caucasus, because I've spent some time in North Ossetia in 2005, 2006. And the, you know, the cooking outdoors and growing lots of vegetables and food and and, uh, fermenting and pickling was all really familiar from that time that I spent there, which I, I really loved actually. But can you tell me a bit more about, I guess, your childhood in Ukraine and what that felt like? Yeah. Um, And I think my story just to link up to this kind of like collective feeling that we have right now is it's quite a lot of Ukrainians share it mm. uh, the the history and also how we grew up and I guess that's a really uniting that's what kind of like gives us that strength and that this bravery as well power, yeah power, exactly yeah. but the way that I grew up I mean I was born in 1984 in in uh, the south of Ukraine and you know it was a tough time for our parents and the 90s were extremely grim as well but there was this I imagine it as a kind of like a I don't know a magical net or something Mm. that our parents have put around us so we had happy childhoods they've blocked us blocked everything else off everything just bounced off you know whatever was happening electricity shortages racketeering just soviet chernobyl you know whatever mm, mm. they just kind of like just put something around us and it was just bouncing off so we actually all in my heart i remember the good the the, the love yeah. yeah and the love and the and the gardens and you know we were quite free and um we used to spend time in among homegrown food everything was um kind of really seasonal in terms of food and uh as you mentioned yeah there was a lot of uh, growing and pickling and um living quite sustainably mm, actually mm. Uh, and you know up to up to today and obviously like ukraine has changed and you know it has become very modern in the cities and whatever but actually quite a lot of that feeling has been preserved mm. in the small smaller towns and countryside did you grow up in the countryside so it's a small town. It's like a 50,000, uh, you know, people town. And there mm. are some kind of like Soviet high rises, but there are also uh, loads of small houses and we would have, you know, a garden. Mm. And, um, you know, and my grandmother's village where she lived was literally a 15 minute drive mm. away. And that was like a proper, proper countryside, mm. you know, mm. by the by the Dnipro River with all of the beautiful smells of the countryside, mm. like cow dung is my favorite smell, I think. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, birds and crickets and, you know, etc. So, and cockerels. Yeah, <laughs> and, yeah, some of the videos that you've posted on social media of swimming, I mean, there's just an absolutely otherworldly beauty to that landscape, which must be so 
changed now because of the the, da- the bombing of the dam. The bombing of the dam mm. has, yeah. So just very quickly to explain to our listeners, the town called Kahovka, where I'm from, they the Soviets have built a dam there in the late 1950s because there was this a program, a, a project, Stalin's project, which was called... I know it wasn't called subjugation of nature, but it was pretty much mm. the project of subjugation mm. of nature. He said not only people or, you know, no, we're a socialist, but also the nature Actual has to kneel down and we need to take everything out of it. You know, it was, oh, it was just so horrific, that whole philosophy, if you can call it a philosophy. So they built this, a series of dams mm. because he wanted to create this basically, well, especially in, in our area, like a sea out of a river. And he created a dam, and as a result, hundreds of villages were were flooded, mm. and um, and people were given like a three day notice to leave their houses, which were bulldozed, mm. or if they refused to leave, they were just murdered mm. by the flood, mm. and then they were moved to these Soviet high rises. So they were also apart from creating the sea, Stalin also was achieving his aim of removing Ukrainians away from the land mm. and from growing mm. and from that kind of, you know, he wanted to destroy the peasants basically. Mm. Mm. And the community. And the community. community. Exactly, yeah. exactly. Mm. Um, so, so that was a disaster in itself, the building of the dam. Mm. Then throughout the years, I mean, what, how, how long has it been? Like for more than 50 years, um, nature has, you know, it's been so much has been destroyed. These floodplains, these beautiful, you know, very unique ec- ecological kind of little corners mm. of Dnieper where oh, these amazing animals and mm. birds and insects lived and that was destroyed, you know, so not only humans suffered, like nature suffered so horrendously. And then they did it again to us mm. just now. Mm. They mined the dam mm. and then they blew up the mines and we have a really horrific ecological disaster on our hands. Mm. Um, a few cities were flooded completely. My hometown, old Kahovka, the new Kahovka has been flooded completely. We, are, we were the original town that got flooded so when this flood happened, the water actually retracted. Mm. So my parents' house used to be on the, the right on the shore of the Dnipro, and now it's like 50 miles of barren earth before you get to the water. And it's, yeah, it, and also, you know, that they mined the yeah. whole of the south of Ukraine, yeah. and they and obviously the, the dam, the flood, has uh, scattered these mines in a really haphazard <laughs> oh way. God, so the other so day on a, on a podcast, I heard someone say that it's going to take another 20 years for it to be to be safe to go back I, w- I want to know f- from a sort of bravery point of view you living here but with the knowledge of what is happening to your beautiful home and your family and the people that you love and your friends and the communities and the world that you know so well how do you find the courage on a daily basis to keep going and find joy and look after your kids and make a living and do all the things that we have to do where does that kind of bravery that you clearly clearly have and you are doing incredible things with incredible fundraising where do you find that how do you get that it's not easy and you know sometimes bravery is associated you know with defense I think sometimes and and maybe even with a little bit of aggression or at least that's how I perceive Mm -hmm. it sometimes you know if you're brave you need to be strong and you know and actually it's also about uh finding that quiet place Mm, yeah absolutely it's having that energy and strength to take a step back and actually at some point I realized if I if I don't find that 
quiet place, that place of beauty and calm, uh, then I won't survive. Mm. Then my brain is just going to, you know, I'm going to burn out mm. and I won't be able to take care of anyone. Mm. Not my children, not my parents, not my uh, country, women and men. Mm. So what I had to do was actually to slow down to remove myself and that also takes courage I think to be like okay if I just take one day off mm, mm. and I'm not in it with my brain and I just take some some time off and I do a little bit of painting mm. or I do a little bit of cooking mm. or anything else mindful embroidery anything to do with your hands where you you know it's called mindfulness these days yeah. but that kind of thing but actually it's it's deeply ingrained in in Ukrainian culture. I feel like in Ukrainian history we get these really you know seismic events, really horrific, horrible events. But then there's always just a little bit of time where you can recuperate and breathe. Mm. And um, and what Ukrainians used to do, for example, just to give you an example, they used to paint their houses uh, yeah. with beautiful ornamental flowers, and they used to do it especially before. Festivities. So, for example, I don't know, Easter is coming. Uh, you, we have these clay um, lime-washed huts uh, in Ukraine, and they would be, uh, you know, lime-washed. Mm. And then either the person who lived in the house, so actually quite a lot of people who weren't trained, would do these really beautiful folk-style ornamental. Oh, just breathtaking paintings, murals mm. in their mm. house, mm. which had actually quite a lot of uh, mystical uh, meaning as well. Mm. So, for example, if you had like an actual proper whirl of, a, I don't know, like a grape tendril or something like or a flower leaf or something like that, they believed that it would suck in the evil spirits or negative energy. Mm. And then after the festivities, they'd paint it white again. And oh, the next, really? and they would, yeah, and they would just cre keep creating these new artworks. And yeah. I just think how therapeutic that was. Yeah. So that's what oh, I that's did. So I painted my door. You painted your <laughs> door. <laughs> I painted my door with some flowers. It's not very good, but I. But that's it so helped. fascinating as creativity as an act of resistance and as and as an act of bravery as well. That the actual act of creating something, and obviously there is beautiful embroidery as you know, I, I associate Ukraine with like incredible embroidery, incredibly beautiful colours, that that itself is an act of bravery. Yeah, and and mimicking nature. Yeah. You know? So drawing drawing on what you see outside, drawing on beauty. And it is, it is absolutely, I think, another word that I associate with bravery, uh, for example, is resilience and resistance. Mm. Will you tell me a little bit about the start of the war and the work that you did raising funds for your brother? Will you tell me how that came about? Yeah, uh, so the, the start of the war, I mean, honestly, I, maybe until two days before it started, we really did not even entertain the idea that it was going to happen. It just seemed so absurd. Were you all talking about it? And think, I mean, because there was rumblings. Yeah, but how we were talking about it, but we were like, oh, they're just, you know, they're bluffing, they're rattling the sabers. It's just unthinkable. You know, all wars are horrific and wrong, but I can't remember the last time that a country was completely at peace, that there was no internal mm. kind of, you know, beef or whatever. Yeah. Like we were just, I know it's a really kind of like, maybe seems like a strange example, but just to, you know, the two days before my brother and my nephews were kind of like enjoying a flat white yeah. and, and typing on a on a laptop, doing a business plan in Kiev or mm. Lviv, you know what mm. I mean? Like just a normal life, just like in the rest life. of yeah. Europe, let's say, or London yeah. or whatever. 
And then the next day, Kiev is being bombed, everywhere is being bombed, and there's this upheaval. It was just so unthinkable mm. that we kind of weren't really prepared, I don't think, in a way. And I wonder what that did, and maybe even for the best in a way, maybe that kind of feeling of courage and bravery after the first initial shock, we were just kind of, that fight or flight just kicked in and a really a powerful, kind of unprecedented for any of us way. A huge fire that was created. Just exactly, yeah. which was simmering, as I say, you know, you know, I call it as anxiety, but maybe something was just simmering there. And then, yeah, and then we just went. And, you know, at first I thought my brother has three children, so he didn't have to join the army. There's a rule that if you have three children, you mm -hmm. can kind of just walk away and not do it. But actually, on the second day of the war, he messaged me or called me and just said, uh, there's a territorial army a regiment and I'm, I'm going to join. And he sends me a picture of himself and it was him standing there in his normal jacket, his uh, trainers, uh, like a cap and a gun and a rifle and I was like okay um you know and we're he's never been to an army he's never you know we're not like he's the most peaceful honestly like two years ago I I don't know there was like a little fruit fly and I mm. killed him and he was like why did you do that yeah so it's, he's it's okay leave it alone you yeah. know what I mean like he's that yes. kind of guy yes yes and then all of a sudden he's holding this rifle but his body is like and I'm and I kept looking at his chest like to see if there's a <sighs> a protective kind of gear underneath a vest like mm. a, a, a vest and I was like where's your ballistic vest and he was like this is it this is all the territorial army has the rest of the stuff is going to the proper army and I'm like okay no 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 no, mm. this mm. is not gonna mm. do it we, we, we're not gonna do that so I just I think in my kind of like <laughs> like intense super intense and scared you know in a way like scared but also maybe brave kind of voice I um, I uh, recorded a video and uh, and I've put it onto my Instagram which at the point I think it, it was about 70,000 people on it and you know they're all amazing people uh, we're all kind of on the same length it's always it always felt like a community they mm. always connected to me through my books um, so there was kind of a depth there I think mm. of understanding and knowing mm. me you know mm. so when I said it I was like oh my god I need to collect some money so mm. I can send my brother and his regiment some ballistic vests some helmets mm. some boots all of the protective gear that mm. they're lacking mm. and I was blown away and I gave my PayPal and literally every two seconds there was money coming in Amazing. from two pounds which I'm extremely grateful for to like a thousand pounds mm. at a go from mm. everywhere, from UK, Hong Kong, America, Australia, just kept on pouring in. And then within two days, we've uh, raised about 110,000 pounds. Wow, that's amazing. And that was just enough, which you think, oh my, it's an enormous amount of money, mm. but it was just enough to, um, to equip my brother and another 105 people in his regiment. Mm. And we've sent them all helmets and vests and boots and, um, you know, tourniquets and anything that they need on a battlefield, basically. Mm. And it was, you know, my and my brother was like, I'm like, who else is in your regiment? He was like, dentists, bakers, uh, a famous a Crimean, Ukrainian Crimean director, like who like filmed this incredible, you know what I mean? Mm. Like anyone from, it, did, it didn't matter, but mm. it was just civilians. Mm, civilians. I civilians. think, no, that's exactly, when you, when you sort of read stories about students and dancers and graphic designers, 
in trenches. You know, it seems so unthinkable. There was a video of this like uh, history professor who was in the trench with his thing on, mm. like doing a Zoom mm. like lecture or something. Yeah. What? I mean, like what? How? How are they doing it? You say, oh, if you know, when you have to do it, you have to do it. But that kind of generosity and courage and resilience and energy and humor almost you know to be There's like lot, doing yeah. a do, and also you do feel there was quite a lot of funny things that ukrainians were doing There's to, lots of memes we, yeah, yeah we, we have and yeah funny jokes very good at memes. they were playing on like tricks they were playing on russians like feeding them <laughs> laxatives and things like that and you just think throwing fermented tomatoes yes, at a drone exactly yeah <laughs> that happened i mean that is the people you want to be around <laughs> you want to be with and I want to know more about what that is and where that really comes from and how to be more like that as well. You know, how to channel some of that bravery in the way that we all live. Oh, I don't think I have an answer for that, unfortunately. Um, I don't know. I feel like obviously there's like good and bad people mm. everywhere. I'm mm. not saying that Ukraine is perfect and there's loads of things that we still need to, to work towards as a society, etc. But overall... I think in the majority, as far as I know from mm. my experience, people are generally really kind mm. uh, and empathetic. Mm. I feel Empathy, like it's a yeah. country of like super empaths. Yeah, that's interesting. Opposed to the neighbor who is quite psychopathic. Yes. I feel like there's a battle of super empaths, mm. fierce super empaths mm. against... Um, yeah, a bunch of psychopaths. Mm. I can't really explain why anyone would support the war and go to war that was unprovoked or, mm. you know, to make us like them or to make us them. You know, mm. there's a lot of that rhetoric. Well, we're the same people, so you must be like mm. us or mm. you must be with us. You know, there's mm. a lot of that kind of an abusive ex-partner or something mm. like that mm. when it's like well if i can't have you or the children i'm going to come and kill you all and, and then i'll kill you. myself yeah mm. at that as well mm. it's also self-destructive mm. for them and it's really weird mm. but it's also because they've never had our experience they haven't been they are the colonizers where the colonized i mean i know that people always talk about or you often talk about colonialism in terms of uh you know being somewhere a faraway place but we, we were a neighbor, but we were essentially colonized and the Russian Empire were the oppressor for a very long time. So they don't have that experience. Mm. They've always had this feeling of superiority. Mm. Everyone has to speak Russian. Everyone has to learn, uh, you know, uh, Russian literature. It's the best, you mm. know, it's mm. all how much of Ukrainian literature and Ukrainian language and Ukrainian culture has been suppressed throughout the years so we couldn't connect to our roots or our ancestors or our intellectual space or... You know, so there's that kind of disparity. Sorry, I went on another tangent there again. No, but it's interesting because I'm well, so because, pissed off. <laughs> but actually, the wars had the absolute opposite of effect of what Putin wanted. It's made Ukrainians stronger and more united and absolutely globally recognized and globally celebrated. And that must be, I mean, I can't say a good feeling because you can't say that it's good that that's come around. But the fact that that has happened must make you feel positive about the future despite the absolute atrocities that are going on absolutely um i am absolutely feeling positive about the future 
and also yeah as you said we've we've suddenly felt united you know even though i've been living in the uk for the past 20 years i feel like i you know i left when i was 12 really i lived mm. in cyprus as well and i felt like i was really connected to my family to my extended family and the friends that i had mm. but not really with the ukrainian community or or society mm. or it, and it was during the war from day one through social media actually mm. that i've met so many incredible people that were that grew up in ukraine you know throughout their whole lives or, or also people in diaspora mm. all of the ukrainians you know because the huge diaspora in canada and in the uk and america and we all just kind of like pulled in like a hive mm. Or you know, <laughs> Putin once said, "Oh, we'll squash you like like your little midges," and I'm like, "Well, little midges can actually get together and really bite." Yeah, <laughs> you know. So that's what I feel. What what happened, and I'm and I feel so lucky to have met all of these, especially loads of women as well, mm. activists, journalists, artists, cooks, uh, food writers. I don't know, you name it, just anyone. Mm. You know, just people who have this common kind of mind and heart and mm. soul mm. and a common mission at the moment mm. and we just all gravitated towards each other and united and now I feel like I'm just connected to this big hive if, if before I was just like a little bit on the edges whatever you know I was trying to promote Ukrainian cuisine yeah. but I feel like I was a little bit on my own and now I feel like we're just this big force. I think that there is something really inspiring about that as well because it is the idea that kind of resistance or creativity or courage is contagious and the more that could also be in relation to other massive problems that we are facing globally like climate change for example yeah. that if we do come together if there is a way to come together does it feed individual courage and bravery yeah. do those little bits of bravery so. join together and it goes like yeah, this big force <laughs> shooting into the sky i don't yeah. know <laughs> very visual <laughs> there was actually a word there's a ukrainian word nakrilo it covered me nakrilo. That, yeah nakrilo about it beat me to the ground and you would i've i've read an article you had written about that that it was the translation that means something beat beat you down kind of like yeah like like nakrite means to cover literally mm, mm. but it's like yeah when it just like swoop, like kind of like came over you in the big force and just the big like, like push black down. cloud pushes yeah and when that how do you pronounce it Nak Nak so when you say mene nakrilo or you can just say oh today nakrilo. today it covered me it covered me and at those moments, where do you find, what do you do? What do you practically do to find the courage and the bravery to stand up again and push that darkness away? Yeah, so yeah, so just to, to, to kind of like quickly again explain the Nakrilo term, it's, it's when you're kind of like start doing okay again. Mm. Yeah, so maybe you did some mm. uh, painting or, or, or reading or mindfulness or gardening mm. or whatever and you feel better and then but that's what they're doing yeah that's the psychological warfare as well as the and then they go and they bomb another city mm -hmm. and you go online and you see that children died or whatever mm -hmm. and that's when it's nakrilo right. and you're just like okay foof, I, I was it's doing sort of better relentlessness. and it just yeah. pushes you down so mm -hmm. that's what they want they want us to kind of like give us a little bit of time to mm -hmm. oh it's okay it's okay and then and that's how you become extremely exhausted mm -hmm. actually so how do we how we do we deal with it? We, we give ourselves a day to cry mm. and you just allow yourself to feel the way that you feel and mm. you don't fight it actually. Mm. Well, I've learned, I've learned that the hard way mm. because you try to resist it and then it's, 
it doesn't really work. Mm. So I think it's it's okay to cry mm. and it's okay to feel all the feelings. Mm. But then uh, the next day you you also give yourself some time if you can mm. off work mm. or you know if children are at school or mm. whatever you're just like okay I do, I do have a lot of work to do mm. but I'm just going to give this hour to myself and I'm going to do a little doodle or I'm just going to go in the garden and just sit down and listen to the, the leaves rustle yeah. or the birds You've posted on your social media about um, your son's condition. And I don't know if you're happy to talk about this. Yeah. But his motherhood, you know, the, the bravery of motherhood. But will you, will you tell us a little bit more about your son? Yeah, the reason why I posted about it today um, is because I want people to know. Mm. And I want him, and I'm sorry, I might get a little bit terrible. No, of course. But I want him to grow up uh, into a world there's accepting and more knowledgeable mm. um, and hopefully you know it's not just about fragile x which he, both he and i have um so yeah in the, you know <laughs> on top of everything that's been happening to us in terms of the war and everything else in november um we found out that my then two and two and two year old son had a genetic condition called fragile x mm. and i've passed it on and basically it's when um your x chromosome is uh damaged mm. And if you're a woman, uh, it, it's it's less severe, the symptoms. So in my case, it's uh, uh, neurological things like ADD and whatever, which, well, at least actually some things made sense to me finally. <laughs> and another thing is uh, premature variant insufficiency, which means that um, I'm experiencing an early menopause mm. at the moment. Mm. So, yeah. And then my son uh, is affected he has only one X, and mm. if that's broken, it means that he uh, he produces very little or no, we don't know yet because we're still waiting to see a geneticist to explain everything to us, but there's a protein that you produce which is responsible for your brain development, and if, if you don't produce it or produce very little of it, you've got a what they call charmingly a global developmental delay, which also means that, uh, you know, you've got a speech delay and uh, autistic actually traits are very common with fragile X kids. And we've been told that it's very rare for, well, or to be honest with you, I haven't found. Sorry. Uh, they're very rarely completely independent when mm. they become adults. Mm. So, yeah, Wilfred might be with us, you know, for his whole life. He won't have a regular kind of adult life mm. uh i don't know i'm doing everything i can to uh to challenge that notion mm. but we'll see mm. so yeah so we found out about that and um well at least it made sense uh everything is because i thought that it was autism you know because he didn't speak he was late in uh yeah in, in the development of many things mm. low muscle tone as well and yeah loads of things like that but um but we're doing it we are we're processing it still, but we are also doing everything that we can to help him. Mm. I have a child who has also was diagnosed with global development mental delay, and I was told that she wouldn't achieve many things that she is now achieving. And I, I don't know your son at all. I don't know about his condition, so I don't want to say anything out of line in any way whatsoever. But believing in the child and communicating love and 
your belief in that child is I think all that matters and and what makes a good life and a and a you know a valuable life is so varied and so surprising and children do also surprise us and and my child who you know I was told that she wouldn't there were many things that she wouldn't be able to achieve she really has and I I think for your son having you as his mom I can see that he's absolutely you know in the best possible place so I don't know I just no, want to communicate love thank and you. support it's, it's for you it's completely not out of line it. at all thank you for saying that because I'm also you know despite everything that we've been told I am you know holding that hope I think hope is so important mm. And maybe hope and bravery are also yeah. very closely related because mm. you can't be brave without any hope mm. and you can't be hopeful without being brave. Mm, absolutely. You know? <laughs> so I am being hopeful and brave about the diagnosis and about what's happening with Wilfred. And actually, as you say, like he's an incredibly happy boy. Mm. And mm. he's, for, for whatever challenges he's having, he's thriving. Mm. He's thriving. They mm. call him Little Chef at Nursery. Oh, really? <laughs> <laughs> he loves cooking. Well, I can't he's surrounded by things. He has no other choice, I guess. Beautiful but... <laughs> environment in which to be growing up. I mean, the <laughs> abundance of... And I love it that it's... It, you know, it's messy here. This is not a neat garden at all. <laughs> no. And there are weeds and there are paths, there are brick paths which are, there is, there's, there's this just feeling of life. And I think we've become so obsessed with control and neatness. And I think it's the wrong way to be as human beings. We need to be, you know, life is messy and difficult and we have no control over it at all. And sitting in this garden is just such a, and having this conversation with you is such a kind of timely and beautiful reminder of what it means to be human and how difficult and hard and extraordinary it is will you share your your talisman i think you're gonna have if i can see something really beautiful on the table in front of us <laughs> will you share your talisman yeah i will it, is it okay that it's three yes two definitely. are connected Abundance. well actually no they're they're all connected actually so um so on the actually two days before the the war happened and you know I have a very as you have heard I spoke about my grandmother Lucia my mom's mom who shared all of those stories with us so she died when I was you know in my early 20s um and but but she was a really powerful kind of figure and I actually have quite a lot of dreams about her mm. about her being up in the sky like mm. in a very kind of like classical way uh in this big kind of like communal space in the sky and I don't know I just feel a really strong connection um to her I feel like her stories live within me and um two days before the war I posted on Instagram I said something like uh you may r rattle your sabers but um we have a million ghosts behind our backs mm, yes, sharpening their scythes waiting for you. And I kind of just clung on to that image, not necessarily of my grandma as this terrible, you know, ghost, but as this power. Oh, yeah. Uh, and um, so I've got two, three talismans, two are connected. So one of them is a picture of her um, in the frame that I painted it's lovely. <laughs> during, Blue during the war frame. using this Ukrainian mm. Petrikivka technique, or at least I was trying to. And it's a picture of me when I was, you know, just before, just before she died, I think a year before she died. And my auntie, who's also gone, um, she died from pancreatic cancer when the war started in 2014. And it's the three of us, and I feel like we are really united and they give me strength 
and she, it's like an altar. So, so they stand on the mantelpiece mm. and uh, and that's like an altar almost. Mm. And then I've got uh, this doll and I will describe it. So it's um, linen and little bits of embroidery and she doesn't have a face. It's like a cloth face and she's got two long plaits and yeah, a little bit of, uh, yeah. Uh, red and, and and black ornaments and she's called Lalka Motanka which means kind of like a, a, a woven doll mm -hmm. in Ukrainian mm -hmm. and it's a really ancient Ukrainian um, tradition uh, a, a, talis a, a talisman for the home mm. essentially mm. so she's the protector of my home and she was actually made by my nephew when he was nine. Oh, really so it's yeah Lovely. and he and 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 yeah when he was nine he's very impressive craftsmanship yeah, sure he had a little bit of help <laughs> but yeah so lelka motenka so we have them as um these protectors of the house and mm. the reason why she doesn't have a face they say if you if you put a face in it then it can be associated with the person then that person can have the power you know so right, she's just yeah. this kind of ancestral female protector of the house and she kind of like sits on top of the frame like this and it gives me strength and courage yeah. to keep going yeah. i just i don't know i've just put this a lot of meaning and, and feeling towards it and i feel like it, they're projecting all of this energy that i need yeah to keep going and then there's a, another little thing which is a um a little pendant of a ghost uh, <laughs> which actually belonged to a, a friend of ours. Mm. Do you know Sophie, Sophie Habert? Yeah, yeah, Sophie's yeah. a really good friend. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so Sophie was really supportive when the war started and she actually, you know, it was a little bit of a freedom fighter HQ mm. here where loads of people came and volunteered to mm. help me out because I was, you know, in this ocean of, I don't know, activism that I didn't know how to handle. And I actually was in her house and I did this choir fundraising thing. I was a part of a choir and we were singing Ukrainian songs. And then afterwards I went to her house and we had a glass of wine. And then the next morning I had this really important interview, I think, for ITV mm. after Matt Hancock or someone. Oh, no, Dominic <laughs> Raab. <Ugh>. Sorry. <laughs> so it was Dominic Raab and then it was Olya Hercules. And I was like, oh, my God, you know, and I was so uh, nervous. Mm that morning and I just said oh my god do you have something that I can fiddle with in my hands and she like yes yes you know let me bring you you know and she brought out this box of jewelry and she was like fumbling actually for her bo for her boyfriend's um at the time um uh, Greek beads mm. and and she as she was looking for them this ghost fell out fell out of the box and to describe it it's like a really kind of like well, how would you describe it well it's a really sweet <laughs> almost like cartoony image of a of a and it's a hammered gold but it does sort of like a look like a cartoon ghost but it's kind of <laughs> Very Casper with the, with the hands up, like hey, well. like yeah. jazz hands, <laughs> ghost. So it's actually yeah, it's humorous, isn't it? Yeah, it's nice. And uh, yeah, and she fell out, and I just thought, oh That's my god, thing. it's a sign. Because basically, when you're going through trauma, even you know whether you're spiritual, even if you're mm. completely not spiritual, I am. But but even but I'm you know I can also be quite skeptical. But she fell out, and I was like, it's a sign. Yeah. And I'm gonna hold on to that. Mm. And to that hope that it gave mm. me, and to that to that kind of, I just thought a ghost. So ghost mm. that I mentioned in the thing, and it's my grandma, and I actually wore it for the first six months. Did I you? didn't I didn't take it off. Yeah. And then actually at some point when I felt a bit better, I was like, oh, actually it's really like bothering me at night. <laughs> it digs into my skin, <laughs> and I took it off, but I still, you know, it's it's with me. Like I take it around in a bag, and I think yeah. I I love your talismans, and I'm actually interested to know because I think of Ukrainian culture as full of beautiful things to hold on to, like the artwork and the you know this embroidery. You know, I've had 
different sorts of trauma, but a lot of trauma in my life. And I have found like small beads or necklaces or a little, I have a little metal head of Christ and things like that. Things to hold on to. Do you find talismans helpful? Absolutely. Um, and you know, one thing that I saw a lot of Ukrainians mentioned was... You know, they post a picture of someone from, I don't know, from Europe. And it's not to make anyone guilty, but just to show what's been happening to us. And, she, and you know, a woman would say like, oh, you know, th how amazing this woman has shared a hundred year old talisman from her great, great, great grandmother. Mm. And a lot of us Ukrainians have been deprived of that. Mm. We don't have that connection. Mm. Mm. We have like it goes up to it. Some of us don't even know like our great grandparents because they were just murdered or deported or whatever mm. and also dispossessed. Mm. So we don't have those things that are passed on from generation to generation, which sometimes become talismans as well and yeah. have so much feeling. So I think now it's it has even more kind of meaning yeah and it doesn't have to be jewelry or something no, or no, something. And it doesn't it's just something that has been passed on and yeah. it's so important to me so all of these little things like this lalka motanka and this frame and this little ghosty you know that i know that i'm gonna hold on yeah. to it and the diaries that i'm keeping and you know yeah. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm gonna keep them and that's the treasure that's the stuff that i'm gonna save in the term you know if, if there's a fire in the yeah. house or something like that that's what i'm gonna apart from my children obviously but in terms of possession yeah. <laughs> That's what I'm going to grab and take with me because yeah. it just has so much energy and meaning and feeling in it. And I want to... And the feeling of the life around it yeah. and the people who've been around that life as well. Yeah. You know, I know that you have done amazing um, Cook for Ukraine. You've been raising money. You've been sending money to Ukraine. How... Because there is a strange feeling of being here, you know, sitting in affluent, peaceful England. What can we do to help? I know that, you know, there's, there's this kind of like, a, well, not kind of, there's a financial crisis and everybody's really struggling. Mm -hmm. So, you know, if you can't donate mm -hmm. and, you know, I still encourage everyone to donate. And I know that I have always been a peaceful person and I would say like, oh, I'll donate for humanitarian causes, but I would never donate to an army. Mm -hmm. But actually, if we don't get them out of mm -hmm. Ukraine this is just going to be a plaster all of the mm. humanitarian aid. We, it will just not be never ending. Mm. They will still keep hurting us. Mm. So if you can donate to uh, people like United24 or, you know, also, yeah, we do have a Cook for Ukraine campaign. Mm -hmm. uh, so you can donate to that. Uh, amazing charities are the legacy of war. Mm -hmm. they, d they do help with humanitarian aid, but they're, but they're on the ground and yeah. they're actually doing stuff. Uh, and my dad has a little volunteer group and mm. it's all on Instagram if you're interested. Um, but also just please keep learning and talking about mm. us. Mm. And I know that, you know, war fatigue is real. Mm. Uh, I know it is a, you know, somebody who's going through war, but also somebody who's experienced other wars happening somewhere else. You know, you just... Mm. you at some point you become so exhausted from feeling all the feelings mm, mm. and you just retreat and you go like okay I'm not gonna look now I just can't I need to take care of my family I have to take care of myself so maybe if you if people can just learn about Ukraine mm. learn about Ukrainian literature go to the Saatchi gallery there's this amazing uh, Maria Primachenko this folk artist um, exhibition go and see everything that I've been talking about mm. because she's been very much influenced by all of the folk house you know house painting art etc yeah. she's one of the best ukrainian artists and talk about it and yeah. keep promoting ukrainian culture um check out ukrainian uh poets like Serhii Jadan, um cook 
please mm. keep cooking, mm. keep cooking Ukrainian dishes and put them up online with mm. Cook for Ukraine hashtag. Mm. It just keeps Ukraine in everyone's psyche and mm. consciousness without it being overbearingly horrific. And I think that also does, you know, a positive thing. It's just, it keeps us in the news and but also in a soft way so people don't forget about us, you know, because it's very easy to disassociate if it becomes too hard to bear. Mm. So it's keeping, I mean, contribute what you can, but also keeping the spirit of Ukraine and the people of Ukraine yeah. alive to yeah. you and inside And you. also, you know, if you see that something is happening and Ukraine needs political support, please, it, it does work when you write to your MPs or your, right. you know, your representatives and if you're that inclined if you can write a really good mm. letter please do it would only take you like five or ten minutes mm. distribute even a template between your friends and just send it off to your mp and just say ukraine needs this or mm. ukraine needs that you know you can see on twitter just whatever i don't know even our president Zelensky says like we need this and this mm. and that campaign for us in that mm. way it's a small way but all together like a hive that we were talking about yes. and you know and people have been doing it all over the world and in the uk and i'm so grateful to every everyone you know there is that um community mm. kind of, of of goodness of kindness so mm. please just keep going you've mm. been amazing and we would appreciate if you just keep going mm. until it's all over it's good knowing as well that the letters to the mps do make a difference because you can think well what difference can i yeah. make and then as an individual but thinking of that well they want to be behind. elected again so they yeah. will listen to mm. you know to people mm. who keep asking so mm. please 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 keep mm. doing it to finish, what advice would you give to somebody listening to this, to me now, to the feeling of like how to be braver in normal, so-called normal life? How can we be braver? You must, you absolutely need to learn how to have courage to give yourself a break. Mm. Without it, honestly, like throughout, and you might know it as well, without having a bit of a break a bit of a pause and taking care of yourself you can't you can't be brave in other ways you can't do good to others you can't take care of others if you're broken i honestly yeah. think this is a number one really essential thing you know our whole lives like there's this notion of like oh don't be selfish oh you're so selfish and of course there are acts of selfishness that are absolutely horrific but self-care caring for yourself yeah. is really important yeah so be courageous and have bravery to take a momentary step back to recuperate so then you can be brave in an active way. Lift up again, yes. Yeah. It's such a good piece of advice. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's been so beautiful sitting here in your garden and, and hearing you talk so articulately and with such kind of passion and heart. Thank you very, very, very much, Olia. It's been lovely. Thank you so much for having me and thank you everyone for listening. I don't know if you can hear, but I'm walking around my kitchen and it's kind of um, quite echoey and empty in here. We move to America tomorrow. I have been in the process of packing up the house for the last three weeks. It's a job that seems to have gone on and on forever. The more I pack, the more stuff seems to appear everywhere. Dismantling our home is is hard, actually. And, you know, I, I'm aware that I'm leaving here especially since talking to Olia, I'm aware, very aware that I'm leaving, you know, from a place of great privilege, going from one peaceful country to another peaceful country. But nonetheless, the act of leaving home, the place where we have lived since 2014, 
and where my children have been really happy is is emotional. Um, it's early morning here, and Lester has just wandered in wearing his pajamas. Morning, Lester. Morning. <laughs> he was worrying because Jimmy, he slept in Jimmy's bed last night, his big brother. And Jimmy leaves to work at 5.30 a.m. So we're all going to have to get up and say goodbye to Jimmy, who we love so much, at 5.30 since we leave at midday tomorrow. Jimmy and Dolly are staying in England. Jimmy is staying in England to go to university and Dolly, my eldest daughter, is coming to America with us for a month and then coming back for university. So I'm also going to be separated from my two eldest children, which kind of goes against, I suppose, everything that I've always wanted as a mother to be in a separate place from them. So, yeah, it's lots of it's just lots of new stuff that I'm dealing with. I thought I was kind of fully bound to this home and fully here. I didn't see moving to America on my horizon at all. If you told me a year ago I was going to be going to live in America, I'd said, what? But it's interesting and it's challenging. Uh, it's early in the morning and I've already cried. I know that I'll cry multiple times today. Lots of friends keep dropping in and it is emotional. I feel emotional even talking to you about this now. I'm somebody that feels a lot of stuff and that's what I express in my writing. That's who I am as a creative person, I suppose. Um, and I think this move to America will be will be exciting in so many ways and sad and interesting and weird and difficult and good. As my really good friend Anna said, even if it's really, really shit, it'll still be really, really good. I know exactly what she means. Anyway, I will definitely be recording this from America next week. How strange is that? Thank you for listening. I'm Clover Stroud, and I really look forward to sharing more brave conversations with some of the amazing guests I have lined up. To keep up with the episode drops, please follow Tiny Acts of Bravery on your podcast platform. And of course, I would be so grateful if you'd rate and review my podcast. And I will be back next week with another brilliant guest.